0: Chapter Twenty Three of the Suffragette: The History of the Woman's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty-three, December nineteen hundred nine to January nineteen ten. The Appeal of Pankhurst and Haverfield versus Jarvis, the Freedom League pickets, Mrs. Pankhurst returns from America. Mrs. Lee's action against the Home Secretary and the Governor and Doctor of Winston Green Jail, Birmingham. Miss Davison's action against the visiting justices of Strangeways Jail, Manchester. Ill treatment of Miss Selina Martin and Miss Leslie Hall at Walton Jail, Liverpool. Lady Constance Lytton imprisoned in Walton Jail as Jane Morton. Whilst Mrs. Bankhurst was still in America, the case in which she, Mrs. Haverfield, and the ninety-two other women were concerned, which had been hanging over since the summer was heard in the divisional court on december first it will be remembered that the suffragettes had sought to put into practice the constitutional right to petition the prime minister as the representative of the government and of the king they held that this right was especially defined by two acts the bill of rights which declares that it is the right of the subject to petition the king and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal and the statute thirteen charles the second which states that no person or persons whatsoever shall repair to his majesty or both or either houses of parliament upon pretence of presenting or delivering any petition complaint remonstrance or declaration or other address accompanied with excessive number of people nor at any time with above the number of ten persons upon pain of incurring a penalty not exceeding the sum of one hundred pounds in money or three months imprisonment without bail or main prize for every offence which offence to be prosecuted at the court of king's bench or at the assizes or general quarter sessions within six months after the offence committed and proved by two more credible witnesses provided always that this act or anything therein contained shall not be considered to extend to debar or hinder any person or persons not exceeding the number of ten aforesaid to present any public or private grievance or complaint to any member or members of parliament though the women had complied with every provision of the act sir albert de rutzen had decided at bow street that they had broken the law in appealing against that decision in the divisional court lord robert cecil contended that in this country there was and always has been a right of petition and he urged that this right was a necessary condition of all free and indeed of all civilized government he pointed out that the right of petition had three characteristics in the first place it was the right to petition the actual repositories of power in the second place it was the right to petition in person and in the third place it must be exercised reasonably in support of his contention that petitions might be presented in person he quoted several historic instances including a petition of women to humphrey duke of gloucester in the reign of henry the fourth many petitions to various powerful personages from all sorts of men and women in the time of the civil wars and the disputes immediately preceding them and petitions to the lord high steward asking for the conviction of strafford in addition to these he cited numbers of petitions presented in sixteen forty when deputations came to the house of commons and the members were instructed to go out and interview the petitioners and hear what they had to say a great petition of sixteen eighty as well as the petitions from the gentlemen of kent in seventeen hundred one that of the silk weavers in seventeen sixty five and that of the trade unionists in eighteen thirty four all of which were presented in person Throughout our history it was clear, he declared, that petitions had been presented, sometimes to the Houses of Parliament, sometimes to powerful individuals, and sometimes to the King. He referred to a case mentioned in Sir Walter Scott's Fortune of Nigel, in which, on King James II complaining of the way in which a petition was thrust into his hand in the streets, a gentleman named Jingling Geordie had taken the opportunity of presenting a petition to him then and there in his private closet even without these historic examples the statute thirteen charles the second already quoted was enough to establish the right to present petitions in person the bill of rights had specially confirmed the right of petition in so far as the king was concerned because the right to present a petition to the king had recently been called into question by the case of the seven bishops which had taken place on june twenty ninth and thirtieth sixteen eighty eight in the reign of james the second the case had arisen because the king had ordered that his declaration of indulgence should be read in all the churches in the country and the seven bishops headed by the archbishop of canterbury being of opinion that the declaration of indulgence was beyond the power of the king had therefore presented a petition to him setting forth this view the king declared the petition to be a seditious libel and the bishops had been brought before the court of king's bench in summing up the case for the jury mr justice holloway said so that if there was no ill intent and they were not as it is not or can be pretended they were men of evil lives to deliver a petition cannot be a fault it being the right of every subject to petition the jury found the seven bishops to be guiltless and the right of petition was thus confirmed in quoting mr justice holloway's summing up lord robert cecil pointed out that the use of the words to deliver a petition clearly indicated that the right was to present the petition in person if that were so the women who had gone to parliament square on june twenty ninth had done so in the exercise of a constitutional right so long as they were denied votes this was their only constitutional method of agitation for the redress of their grievances if as was contended the right not only to petition but to petition in person belonged to each and every subject the only point left to consider was to whether the right had been exercised reasonably if one wished to interview the prime minister or any member of parliament it was surely reasonable to go to the house of commons by means of the stranger's entrance the evidence clearly showed that mrs haverfield and the others had been on the public highway and had been brought up to the door of the house of commons by superintendent isaacs of the police so that up to that point they could not possibly have done anything wrong opposite the door of the house of commons an open space had been kept clear by the presence of a police cordon the crowd not being allowed to reach this point within the cordon there were only members of the police force persons who had business in the house of commons and the eight members of the women's deputation therefore it was absurd to say that these eight ladies had caused an obstruction it was suggested that the women ought to have gone away because as he put it a casual policeman had said that the prime minister was not in the house of commons but that was really not a sufficient answer the ordinary procedure certainly was not to take an answer from a policeman in the street if one wished to interview a member of parliament the police had no right to stop any one from going into the house of commons it was also said that the women had been given a letter from the prime minister saying that he would not or could not see them had he said i cannot see you here and now but i will see you on such and such an occasion this is not a convenient time That argued lord robert would have been a sufficient answer because the right to petition must be exercised reasonably but his letter contained an unqualified refusal and if the right to petition exists that is no answer at all lord robert then submitted that if there is a right to petition a member of parliament there must be a duty on the part of the member of parliament to receive that petition and that no one is justified in interfering with the exercise of that right if the women were legally justified in insisting upon the right to present their petition they were also justified in refusing the order of the police to go away for there was no obligation to obey the police if the police were acting beyond the scope of their proper duties or contrary to the law of the land in the case of Cod versus cave a warrant had been issued against a man and a policeman had gone to his house to arrest him without taking a warrant with him the man had declined to go with the policeman and had knocked him down and injured him severely but it had been held by the court that the man was not guilty because the policeman had no right to arrest him without a warrant in delivering judgment the lord chief justice said that he entirely agreed that there was a right to present a petition either to the prime minister as prime minister or as a member of parliament and that petitions to the king should be presented to the prime minister but he said the claim of the women was not only to present a petition but to be received in deputation had it been only to present the petition he did not think that mr asquith would have refused and he expressed the opinion that his refusal to receive the women in deputation was not unnatural in consequence of what we know did happen on previous occasions in making this remark the lord chief justice showed that instead of concentrating his mind upon the actual case before him he was allowing himself to be biassed by inaccurate reports as to what had taken place on previous occasions as a matter of fact mr asquith never had received a deputation of women since he had been prime minister and never at any time had he received a deputation of the women's social and political union in the house of commons therefore it was absurd to talk about what had taken place on previous occasions and moreover even if mr asquith had received deputations on previous occasions and trouble had resulted the lord chief justice would have had no right to take these occurrences into account unless reliable evidence as to what actually had occurred had been laid before him in connection with the case relying on the metropolitan police act of eighteen thirty nine which provides that it shall be lawful for the commissioner of police to make regulations and to give directions to the constables for keeping order and for preventing any obstruction of the thoroughfares in the immediate neighbourhood of the house of commons and the sessional order which empowers the police to keep clear the approaches to the house of commons the lord chief justice declared that mrs Pankhurst mrs haverfield and the other women had broken the law when they had insisted that they had a right to enter the house of commons and that for this reason they had been properly convicted and that the appeal must be dismissed with costs by this decision the ancient constitutional right of petition secured to the people of this country by the act of thirteen charles the second and the bill of rights was for all practical purposes rendered null and void what is the use of a right that one may not put into practice does any one suppose for one moment that the right of petition would have been cherished as it has been and that people would have suffered heavy punishment for putting it into practice in troublous times if it had merely consisted in sending a written document obscurely through the post or by a messenger to the person in power whom it was intended to influence no for the right could never have been anything but valueless had the presentation of the petition not been accompanied by the pomp and circumstance and the dramatic and spectacular character of a public deputation and by the influence that only personal pleading can lend every scrap of evidence tends to show that the right of petition was to be exercised personally if it were otherwise why should the act of charles the second have insisted that the signatories to the petition should be represented by a limited deputation moreover there is no suggestion that a written document was required and that the petition might not have been made as it frequently was by word of mouth shortly after this case of pankhurst and haverfield versus jarvis had been decided the divisional court was again occupied with an appeal case bearing upon the right of petition this time at the instance of the women's freedom league in july the league had followed the example of the w s p u in claiming the constitutional right of personal petition to the prime minister after much preliminary negotiation a deputation of their number had appeared at the stranger's entrance to the house of commons on july fifth and on being told that mr asquith would not receive them they had announced their intention of waiting there until he should change his mind they were allowed to wait and reinforced by relays of others continued to do so right on into the new year and were constantly to be seen standing outside on the pavement both day and night whenever the house was sitting many members of parliament appealed to mr asquith to receive them and so bring their weary vigil to an end but he obstinately refused and always evaded the suffragette pickets as they were called usually he left the house by one of the underground passages but it was said that one night he hurried unrecognized through their lines punch then published a cartoon by e t reed entitled mr Asquith's disguises showing the prime minister as a cab-driver a postman a policeman an elderly maiden lady and in other characters on july ninth The pickets were also put on at No. 10 Downing Street, where they succeeded in waylaying the Prime Minister at about two o'clock in the afternoon and ran towards him, crying, "'A petition! A petition! Will you give us a hearing, Mr. Asquith?' As he rushed past, he snatched the document from one of them, saying, "'Well, I will take the petition,' and then fled on up the steps and banged the door. The pickets were still waiting for the interview when the police arrived to arrest them they were afterwards sentenced to three weeks imprisonment in default of paying fines of three pounds on july fifteenth four women again picketed downing street but were arrested and sent to prison without even so much as catching a glimpse of the premier on august sixteenth a line of women was drawn up between the house of commons and the door of ten downing street where stood mrs cobden sanderson and mrs Despard. this time they saw mr Asquith but though some of the women spoke to him he hurried on without making any reply three days later on the nineteenth the line of women was again formed but mrs despard mrs cobden sanderson and six others were placed under arrest mr tim healy the well-known irish member of parliament was briefed for their defence but on august twenty seventh mr curtis bennett decided to fine the women forty shillings or to send them to prison for seven days he stated a case for the high court and this was heard on january fourteenth nineteen ten when the lord chief justice decided against the women saying that there were other means of presenting petitions than going in numbers to do so meanwhile it was announced that the cases against the ninety-four women who were concerned with mrs pankhurst and mrs haverfield would be withdrawn but at the same time application was made by the authorities for the fines recorded against mrs pankhurst and mrs haverfield and it was intimated that unless these were forthcoming steps would be taken to arrest and imprison them but immediately after this on monday december sixth an official receipt for the amount of mrs pankhurst's fine was sent to Clemens inn and it was stated that the money had been paid by some unknown person Note forty-three two days later mrs Pankhurst returned from her lecturing tour in the united states and canada which had been a most triumphant success on december ninth the action by mrs lee against mr gladstone as home secretary and the governor and doctor of winston green gaol which as to decide the question of the legality of forcible feeding by the prison authorities was tried before the lord chief justice it was pointed out on mrs lee's behalf that there was no rule or regulation to justify forcible feeding dr ernest dormer kirby who had attended her on her release testified that her condition was distinctly grave and that she had then weighed no more than six stone six pounds sir victor horsley mr william hugh fenton senior surgeon at the chelsea hospital for women and mr mansell moulin all declared forcible feeding by means of the nasal tube to be painful dangerous injurious to health and incapable of providing adequate nourishment dr maurice craig consulting physician of welbach street and late senior assistant physician at bethlehem hospital who was called as a witness for the defence of mr gladstone and of the officials said that the operation of nasal feeding was a simple one on the average he considered it more dangerous to leave a patient starving than to overcome resistance sir richard douglas powell also called for the defence admitted that he would not willingly resort to artificial feeding unless it was quite necessary the lord chief justice said that he should rule that it was the duty of the medical officer of the prison to take all reasonable steps to preserve mrs lee's life and to prevent her committing suicide the only question he should leave to the jury would be whether the governor and doctor had taken the right steps in his summing up he assumed throughout that the jury must decide against Mrs Lee they did as he directed and she thereupon lost her case on January 19th an action was begun by Miss Emily Wilding Davison against the visiting justices of Strangeways jail Manchester for having ordered that a hosepipe should be played upon her judge perry said that the use of the hosepipe was both ineffective and unnecessary that the duty of the visiting justices was to prevent any abuse of authority by the officials of the jail and to report and make suggestions. Therefore, he held that they were not justified in ordering the assault and decided the case in Miss Davison's favor. In assessing the damages, however, he said that he should take into account the fact that the hosepipe incident had resulted in the prisoner's release before the expiration of her sentence, had provided her with copy for a vivacious and entertaining account of the affair in the press and had advertised her cause under these circumstances the damages should be no more than forty shillings a nominal sum the costs which were charged against the visiting magistrates were however placed on the highest scale because the case was held to be one of great importance meanwhile there was no lack of turbulent scenes all over the country cabinet ministers meetings were daily being interrupted both by women who had succeeded in concealing themselves and by men who urged the question of votes for women on their behalf when mr lloyd george spoke at reading two women started up from under the platform during his speech in the queen's hall london a few days afterwards a forcible feeding tube was suddenly flung at him and he caught it in his hands as the stewards fell upon the man who had thrown it mr lloyd george cried i do not envy him his paid job when speaking in the louth town hall mr lloyd george was referring to the house of lords as an unrepresentative chamber when a voice from the roof remarked so is the house of commons as far as women are concerned i see some rats have got in let them squeal it does not matter said the chancellor of the exchequer and amidst a terrible uproar miss hudson and miss bertha brewster were dragged down from amongst the rafters where they had lain concealed for many hours they were taken to the police station charged with infringing the public meeting act and detained in custody from saturday until monday both in the same small cell which contained only one narrow prison mattress and some rugs on monday the magistrate discharged them with a caution complimenting them on their pluck the government was averse to allowing them to be let off so lightly and on wednesday miss brewster was rearrested for having broken her cell windows in walton gaol liverpool in the previous august she was sentenced to six weeks imprisonment but gave notice to appeal against a sentence on the ground that she had already been specially punished for this offence whilst in prison on january thirty first she was released in order that she might prosecute the appeal and evidently thinking that the case hardly did him credit mr gladstone announced that she would not be asked to complete her term of imprisonment the appeal was therefore dropped on december twentieth mr asquith had arranged to speak both at liverpool and birkenhead and owing to his desire to avoid the suffragettes detectives smuggled him across the river amongst the luggage nevertheless outside the liberal club miss selina martin and miss leslie hall who stood in the gutter the one disguised as a match girl and the other as an orange seller spoke to him as he stepped from his motor-car and urged him the necessity for granting the franchise to women he dashed away without answering and in protest and by way of warning miss selina martin tossed a ginger-beer bottle into the empty car which he had left both women were at once arrested and were afterwards remanded in custody for six days bail was refused though miss selina martin promised that she and her comrade would refrain from militant action until the case should come on note forty four the women were removed to walton jail and were there treated as though they had been ordinary convicted criminals they protested by refusing to eat just as so many of their comrades had done before them miss martin also barricaded her cell but the officials forced their way in pulled her off the bed and flung her on the floor shaking and striking her unmercifully shortly afterwards her cell was visited by the deputy medical officer who ordered that she should get up and dress she explained that she had been wet through by the snowstorm on the previous day and that her clothes were still saturated for no attempt had been made to get them dry but she was forcibly dressed and with her hands handcuffed behind her was dragged to a cold dark punishment cell and flung on the stone floor she lay there in an exhausted state for some hours, being unable to rise without the aid of her hands and arms, which were still fastened behind her back, until at last a wardress came in and lifted her on to the bedboard. The irons were kept on all night. On Friday, the third day of her imprisonment, Miss Martin was brought up before the visiting magistrates she protested against the way in which she was being treated pointing out that she was still an unconvicted prisoner but she was told that the officials were quite justified in all they might do the same evening several wardresses entered her cell and ordered her to go to the doctor's room to be forcibly fed i refused she says and was dragged to the foot of the stairs with my hands handcuffed behind then i was frog marched that is to say carried face downwards by the arms and legs to the doctor's room After a violent struggle, I was forced into a chair, the handcuffs removed, my arms being held by the wardresses, whilst the doctor forcibly fed me by that obnoxious instrument, the stomach tube. Most unnecessary force was used by the assistant medical officer when applying the gag. The operation finished, I walked handcuffed to the top of the stairs, but refused to return to the punishment cell. Then two wardresses caught me by the shoulders and dragged me down the steps, another kicking me from behind as i reached the bottom step they relaxed their hold and i fell on my head i was picked up and carried to the cell next day she was forcibly fed and afterwards again refused to return to the dark cell but she says i was seized by a number of wardresses and carried down the steps my head being allowed to bump several times meanwhile miss leslie hall had also broken her windows and had been placed in a punishment cell and kept in handcuffs continuously for three days after two and a half days fasting she was fed by the stomach-tube the doctor had taunted her meanwhile and jokingly told the wardress that she was mentally sick and that it was like stuffing a turkey for christmas on monday december twenty seventh the women were again brought into court when miss leslie hall was ordered one month's imprisonment with hard labour and miss selina martin two months on returning to prison both the women refused to wear prison dress and recommenced the hunger strike each one was then clothed in a straitjacket and placed in a punishment cell forcible feeding was continued and they both grew rapidly weaker until february third when they were released meanwhile the facts as to their treatment whilst imprisoned on remand had been widely circulated for they had dictated statements for their friend's use whilst their trial was being conducted mr gladstone wrote to the times denying the truth of the statements declaring that the reason for refusing bail to the women was that they had refused to promise to be of good behaviour until their trial came on that no unnecessary violence had been used and that the women themselves had made no complaint but indeed the inaccuracy of mr gladstone's statements had become proverbial for he was constantly denying the truth of charges which were clearly substantiated by the most reliable evidence now lady constance lytton in spite of her fragile constitution and the disease from which she suffered again determined to place herself beside the women in the fighting ranks who were enduring the greatest hardship Believing that she had been released from Newcastle Prison on account of her rank and family influence, she determined that this time she would go disguised. She knew that not only her family, but the leaders of the militant movement would try to dissuade her on account of her health. She therefore decided to speak of her intention to no one except Mrs. Baines and a few local workers whom she pledged to secrecy. On January 14th, she and Mrs. Baines organized a procession to Walton Jail a halt was called opposite the prison and having told the story of what was happening inside lady constance called the people to follow her to its gates and demand the release of the tortured women then she moved forward and as she had foreseen she was immediately placed under arrest at the same time elsie howey dashed into the prison yard and broke one of the windows of the governor's house by striking it with a purple white and green flag she too was taken into custody and bail being refused the two comrades passed the night in the cells lady constance had disguised herself by cutting her hair wearing spectacles and dressing herself in poor and plain garments and now she gave jane wharton seamstress as her name and occupation next morning she was sentenced to fourteen days hard labour without the option of a fine whilst elsie howey was sent to prison for six weeks hard labour then they were dragged ruthlessly away to the torture which they well knew was to come on arriving at the prison on saturday january fifteenth they made the usual claim to be treated as political prisoners and on this being refused signified their intention of refusing to conform to any of the prison rules thereupon they were forcibly stripped by the wardresses and dressed in the prison clothes at five o'clock on tuesday the doctor entered lady constant lytton's cell with four wardresses and the forcible feeding apparatus then without testing her heart or feeling her pulse though she had not been medically examined since entering the prison he ordered that she should be placed in position she did not resist but lay down on the bed-board voluntarily well knowing that she would need all her strength for the ordeal that was to come her poor heart was palpating wildly But she set her teeth and tried to calm herself. The doctor then produced a wooden and a steel gag and told her that he would not use the latter, which would hurt, unless she resisted him. But as she would not unlock her teeth, he threw the milder wooden instrument aside and pried her mouth open with the steel one. Then the stomach tube was forced down, and the whole hateful feeding business was gone through. The reality surpassed all that I had anticipated, she said. It was a living nightmare of pain, horror, and revolting degradation. The sense is of being strangled, suffocated by the thrust down of the large rubber tube, which arouses great irritation in the throat, and nausea in the stomach. The anguish and effort of retching whilst the tube is forcibly pressed back into the stomach, and the natural writhing of the body restrained, defy description. I forgot what I was in there for-I forgot women i forgot everything except my own sufferings and i was completely overcome by them the doctor annoyed by her one effort to resist affected to consider her distress assumed and struck her contemptuously on the cheek as he rose to leave but the wardresses showed pity for her weakness and they helped to wipe her clothes over which she had been sick they promised to bring her others in the morning but she was obliged to pass the night as she was for owing both to the low temperature of the cell and her own lack of vitality she was always so cold that she wore her night-dress and all her clothes both day and night even then her limbs remained stiff with cold and though at last as a special favour she was allowed first one and then another extra blanket and the cape which the prisoners wear at exercise she remained cold for she says it was like clothing a stone to warm it when she was fed the second time the vomiting was more excessive and the doctor's clothes suffered he was angry and left her cell hastily saying you did that on purpose if you do it again to-morrow i shall feed you twice how very much easier would it have been to have given in or never to have started this resistance how very much more natural to this gentle creature whose whole life had been one of affectionate deference to the wishes of others who because of her kindly sweetness had been named by her family angel Con, would it have been to save others trouble and quietly to submit to the discomforts of prison life but where principles were in question none could be stronger or firmer than constance lytton and she was determined to go on with the bitter thing until the end yet through it all her gentle nature was apparent she could not bear that any of the ordinary prisoners should be brought in to clean up the mess on her cell floor and except upon one or two occasions she always managed to do it for herself in spite of her weakness and distress notwithstanding his brutal rudeness to her she even tried to wipe the doctor's clothes if anything was spilt upon them For the sake of the other prisoners she tried, too, to help him with his hateful task, by making suggestions to him as to how it might be rendered more efficacious and some of its horrors mitigated, but her suggestions were contemptuously disregarded. The third time she was fed she vomited continuously, but the doctor kept pouring in more food until she was seized with a violent fit of shivering. Then he became alarmed he hastily told the wardresses to lay her on the floor and called in his assistant to test her heart but after a brief and superficial investigation it was pronounced quite sound and the pulse steady next time he appeared he pleaded with her saying i do beg of you i appeal to you not as a prison doctor but as a man to give over you are a delicate woman you are not fit for this sort of thing is anybody fit for it she answered i beg of you i appeal to you not as a prisoner but as a woman to refuse to continue this inhuman treatment from wednesday january nineteenth and onwards she began to find that not only did she receive greater consideration from the doctor but that there was a marked change in her treatment generally this led her to conclude that her identity had been discovered or at least suspected and she therefore tried to take advantage of whatever privileges might be made to her in order to secure concessions for her comrades and to induce the officials to act with more humanity but though she considered that she had been treated with more kindness than was usual we learned that obvious simple necessities were denied her the processes of digestion were entirely stagnant and she was losing weight daily and though she made several suggestions as to remedies and at last an apparent drug was promised to her it was never supplied she was right however in thinking that her identity had been discovered on friday the authorities made up their minds that she was not jane wharton and on sunday morning both the governor and doctor appeared and told her that she was to be released and that her sister had come to fetch her Lady Constance Lytton now sent a careful statement to Mr. Gladstone, asserting that the forcible feeding was performed with unnecessary cruelty and without proper care. He declared that all her charges were unfounded, and the visiting magistrates, having held a one sided inquiry into the matter, announced that the regulations had been carried out with the greatest care and consideration. Footnotes 43 a few days later the same thing happened in the case of mrs haverfield and later still in regard to the members of the women's freedom league forty four miss martin's promise was reported in the liverpool daily post and other papers chapter twenty three